Welcome to the Joan Shorenstein Center on the Press, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more on events, news, and research, visit us at shorensteincenter.org. Um, Nancy Gibbs is uh, one of the singular talents who has been uh, paid the extraordinary compliment of having survived all of the permutations of Time magazine. <laughs> she and John Huey are, are, are two extraordinary survivors of, uh, of the, you know, the very, very tumultuous uh, world of news magazines over the last couple of decades. I know that the news business in general has been going through fits for the last several years, but the magazine business, especially the news magazine business, has been going through these kinds of fits for 20 years. And it's been a, uh, a struggle to find the kind of continuity sometimes of, uh, of an institution like Time Magazine. That continuity is, the, uh, is embodied in Nancy Gibbs. She um, is also an old friend. My wife, my late wife, was a writer at Time Magazine, and she and Nancy worked together when uh, Nancy was uh, a teenager, I think, and uh, it was a long time ago. Uh, and they uh, were among the people who were you know, in, in a short supply at Time Magazine at that time. They were women, and they were women in positions of, of authority recognized as writers um, eventually. And I think that uh, Nancy has written now more than 150 f covers. Um, she is co-author of uh, two very distinguished books, uh, one of them very, very germane about the presidents of the United States and what happens to the sitting president and the unseated president in the wake of, uh, of leaving office called The President's Club, which has gotten terrific reviews. Uh, she's going to talk to us today on a subject that is particularly germane because uh, if you follow the news, you know that Time Warner is ch changing its structure and once again Time Magazine's future is uncertain. It's going to be moved to a new arrangement that will put it in with uh, CNN in a more intimate kind of way than it has been in the past. But the future of it as an institution, especially as a print publication, uh, is uncertain. There's no question about it. And we have Nancy Gibbs here to talk about mm -hmm. the new time as one of her themes. I don't think it was quite as, as on point as she thought it was going to be when she suggested it. But we're very glad to have you, uh, Nancy, and the, the floor is yours. So, as Alex says, we've known each other for a very long time, and I've admired Alex as one of the great newsmen for decades. And, of course, as you know, the mark of a great newsman is not only someone who can figure out and explain important things that have happened, but see around corners to important things that are going to happen, which is why I actually think Alex is responsible for having me here on the day. <laughs> that is the headline in the Wall Street Journal, Time Explores Magazine Sales. I mean... It was nothing. <laughs> That's really impressive. Um, so... I love the fact that we're a small room, so uh, I would invite you to interrupt at any point. I'll, I'll talk for a little bit, but then I'm, I'm very eager to hear what is on your minds as you're thinking about the great big questions 
that are always in the back of our minds, and perhaps for us uh, in the front of our minds today about our past and what abides and our future and what will sustain us. Um, when Time was founded, which is 90 years ago next month, uh, our, our profession was, it was a somewhat disreputable one. H.E. Liebling said that uh, journalism was a refuge for the vaguely talented. Um, <laughs> But the young men, and they were all men, who got together in 1923, none of them more than three years out of college, to found time, were abundantly talented and, I think, abundantly visionary. Uh, one of them, Britton Hayden, said that I think the inspiring problem he was looking to address was that people talk too much about what they don't know. People talk too much about what they don't know. And so... They were looking to figure out a way to get information into the heads, off the page, into the heads of busy people. Uh, this came at a time when New York alone had more than a dozen daily newspapers. So fact one, Time Magazine was born in an age of infobesity. It was born in a period of information overload. Uh, that is not a new thing. Fact two, it was created by those 23-year-olds working seven days a week. On Sundays, there was no heat in the building, so they typed particularly quickly. Um, so fact two is it has always depended on exploiting talented young people. That does not change. Uh, and the idea of, of taking the news and figuring out what was most important and organizing it in a way that was going to be most accessible for busy people. That concept, you could say that Henry Luce and Britton Hayden, Times founders, invented curation and aggregation, the terms that we are all spending so much time thinking about today. You can also say that the president of Harvard at the time, Charles Eliot, called that concept disgusting and disgraceful. Mm -hmm. The idea of condensing the news, the horrifying of idea. Of course they were Yale men. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that might have had something to do with it. Um, but the other important thing to realize is that, is that uh, Time was never just about the news, and we can still call it a news magazine, which it is as long as your definition of news and your definition of magazine is extremely elastic. Um, from the beginning, uh, the prospectus, and I love this, I only found this recently, the prospectus was uh, an admission of their prejudices, the founders' prejudices, which was faith, faith in the things which money cannot buy a respect for the old, particularly in manners, and an interest in the new, particularly in ideas. So what that meant in practice was that the cover of Time, which became, with its red border, one of the great iconic pieces of real estate in American journalism, was devoted not only to presidents and senators and tyrant, tyrants around the world, but to Joe DiMaggio and Mark Chagall and John Updike and Martin Luther King and Bruce Springsteen and Ellen DeGeneres and the icons of Hollywood, of literature, of fine art, of architecture, of philosophy, of religion. Luce and his kin were believers in the great man theory of history. They believed that men, and it was largely men, moved events, and it was men, and it was almost entirely men who wrote about those events um, until... The first generation of women 
with Susan much in the vanguard, broke down the doors uh, just in time for youngsters like me to arrive. And it was a, it was a fairly peculiar place that I joined uh, long, long, long ago in 1985. And at that time, uh, time still had the power to set the national agenda in the way few newspapers, few other media organizations could. And it was something the magazine was very proud of, that the editor of Time could pick up the phone and get anyone at any time to talk about anything, that the reach of the magazine journalistically was all around the world with correspondents in major cities across the globe who would file endless interviews and dispatches. I would routinely see you know, 20, 30, 50,000 words of reporting filed to the writers in the great cathedral in Rockefeller Center to be turned into an 800-word story. The, the intensity of condensation was something almost unimaginable to us now when virtually every thought, every quote, every idea that enters the head of any journalist instantly becomes a tweet or a blog post or a, a story of some kind. Vast amounts of often fascinating information ended up on the cutting room floor and no one ever saw it. And so for those of us who approach um, post-war American history as both journalists and historians, and what has been great fun about the books I've worked on is going back into these archives of all of this unpublished material, interviews with presidents, interviews with secretaries of state, with key cabinet members, that none of which was ever published, all of which lies in vaults somewhere and is just endlessly interesting. So the richness and the depth of the reporting that occurred was quite extraordinary. It was also at that time, uh, towards the end of the 80s and the early 90s, that I first was reading uh, fairly regular stories about the imminent death of time. Uh, and the the... The villain in the plot would either be CNN with the arrival of 24-7 cable news. Why on earth would anyone look to any sort of once-a-week publication to tell them what had happened in the past seven days? Um, or it certainly the arrival of the Internet. Well, now, why would anyone who can have information of all kinds at their fingertips at all hours of the day ever need this publication. And so the fact that those stories have been written so regularly doesn't mean that they will not one day become true. But I go back to where I was before about the definition of news and the definition of magazine. Um, I am not a particular sentimentalist about print. I am an extreme disciple of storytelling. I think storytelling is as much a life force as food and water and fire. And men and women have been telling stories since they sat in caves around fires because it is what puts our lives and our world in context. It gives us meaning. It makes sense of why we are here. I think we need stories. And people who are able to go out, find things out that matter, discover things that are surprising, hear from people who are interesting, turn those stories into, into shareable form. That is the essence of what we are doing. 
I don't particularly think people care what we think. I think they care what we can find out. And so our job is to send people out in the world, find out stuff that matters, put it into a form with wonderful photography, with great narrative storytelling, that people will <coughs> consume the way we consume the other things that help us make sense of our lives and grow and get stronger. So I would actually now say that those 22-year-olds who were launching their magazine 90 years ago, who had a fairly decent initial subscriber list of 12,000 people. It included Thomas Edison and William Howard Taft and Franklin Roosevelt and Henry Ford. It wasn't a bad list. But they would only have dreamed. And in fact, the editors of Time, at its heyday, wherever you put that, at its most powerful, would only have dreamed of the audience that we have now, which is roughly 25 million people for print and another 25 million online, a 50 million reader audience is a fantastic opportunity. And so all the technology that is supposed to be killing us actually makes us stronger if we don't screw this up, which is where we get to where we find ourselves now. There are so many ways that we could still screw this up. We don't have an audience problem, we have a revenue problem. And I am confident that all the smart people in our industry who are trying to figure out the economic model that will sustain journalism, that will sustain serious journalism, um, will figure it out. I think the demand and the need for good, strong, responsible, authoritative reporting has never been greater. In fact, the more bad information that is out there, the more the need for good information, for reliable information, I think, grows. So against all odds and everything I'm reading, particularly this morning, I'm enormously optimistic about the opportunity that we have. And the reason I continue to think the, the raft down the rapids that Alex talks about, yes, it has, been, it has been quite a ride. But you get to work with the most interesting, smartest people you can imagine in a job whose basic essence is go find out stuff that's interesting and tell other people about it. And that's hard to beat as a, as a job description. So now, you can all tell me that I'm crazy to be even remotely this optimistic, and I'll be happy to entertain highly skeptical challenges to this rosy scenario. But, um, but that is why, actually, to wake up yet again to uh, another round of, of what will become of us, um, I'm, actually, uh, I'm actually tremendously excited about what this next chapter, even as we sit here, the next chapter for our company and to some extent for our industry is getting written. And so we'll see where that takes us. <clears throat> I want to ask the first couple of questions and then we'll open it up. But I, I want before I do for you to, if you would please, to give people an idea of the way life at Time Magazine used to be. <laughs> to tell the story of going to the U.S. Steakhouse, you told me just before <laughs> we, were, we were in here. U.S. Steakhouse was on the bottom of, of the Time Life building in Rockefeller Center, and it was a, you know, a lush, fancy New York steakhouse where a lot of people from Time, especially on the closing night, Friday night, would go down and, uh, and have dinner on the company. 
So when I came to time, I was hired uh, fresh out of grad school as a part-time fact checker. And my job was to make sure that all the names were spelled right and the distances were correct and that all of the verifiable facts in a story had been appropriately verified. And I was told uh, that I needed to be very careful because if I allowed more than three mistakes to get into the magazine, I would be fired. But I was also told to be very careful to not be too good at it because if I was too good at it, then any possibility of being promoted was out of the question. <laughs> so that's an interesting line. So, so I arrived, and, and the week that I, that I started at time was the week that the first computers were introduced into uh, the offices, and it was really entertaining watching the writers um, court these new machines that they were supposed to, to make some kind of peace with. That, uh, that took some doing. So on Friday nights, on closing nights, most copy was still the writer would write it, it would be delivered to an editor who would mark it up, it would then go to the typists who would retype a clean copy, which would go to the top editor who would mark that up, it would go back to the typists who would type a clean copy, it would go to the researchers who would put dots over every word once they had verified it. The chief of researchers was referred to as top dot. You would put a black <laughs> dot over words that you were pretty sure were accurate to the extent that was possible, but a red dot over any proper name, anything that was absolutely indisputably true, and then your dotted up manuscript would be retyped sent to the copy desk. So as you can imagine, once the writers had sent their copy off into the system, they had a fair bit of free time on their hands, which meant that um, the... The bars of Midtown Manhattan did a land office business on Friday nights. Um, at some point, it had become so difficult to round up the writers and find them and bring them back to actually close the stories that all the alcohol came back into the building and every section of the magazine had its own bar that... Um, <laughs> I remember a memo going around when I first got there to all of the secretaries of each section who, among whose responsibility was keeping the bar stocked, requesting that they all be sure that their section refrigerator included at least one non-alcoholic beverage. <laughs> so one of the writers that I was assigned to check his stories um, on Friday nights would go down to the steakhouse, unlike many of his brethren who would be there dining with their colleagues, he would go down and he would order a dozen porterhouse steaks, but he would order them raw and wrapped and take them home. And then on his expense account would write which 11 people he had entertained for dinner that night. So that, was, that was Time Magazine was when that. I was introduced to it. That was um, that's not the way it is now. No, you don't. Um, you said something that I would like you just to, to develop because you put it in a way, you're a great storyteller, clearly, and you put it in a way that is quite elegant but is quite, in, an, in its own way, contrary to what the sort of received wisdom in some areas is. You said people don't care about what we think. They care about what we can find out. I subscribe to that. I'm not so sure that's the premise upon which these institutions are moving forward, though. Well, you're quite right. Um, as you can imagine, um, anyone can have an opinion. Those are cheap. They're free. Anyone can have them. Finding stuff out is an expensive business. Having a bureau in Baghdad is an expensive operation. 
Sending a photographer into Syria is an expensive operation and a dangerous one. The, the information gathering part of our business is both the part that only we can do full time with professionals who are trained to go to dangerous places and get people to tell them things. The opinion part, um, that bar is lower and so it's entirely understandable why that um, is an easier product to manufacture. I'm exaggerating when I say people don't care what we think, but I do think, and you all can tell me I'm wrong, that even when you are reading um, an op-ed, when you're reading a columnist, the columnist who you know did some reporting before writing has a very different kind of authority and the flavor of that column feels very different than the one who you know has pretty, is, you know, the cliche of the blogger sitting at home in their pajamas who has not picked up the phone, has not talked to anyone, dug into anything. It is, yes, it's a bias that I overstate and defend because I think we have to continue to invest in the journalism part of journalism. I do think people care what we think, but I think our authority to express what we think something means uh, depends on having done the work. And I also would say that, that at its best, the, I like a story that, that invites the reader to disagree, that doesn't just sort of, here's what I think and set up a straw man of who would disagree, that actually is, is more provocative and more multidimensional. The, the most valuable, whenever I'm talking to journalism students and undergraduates who are interested in journalism and they always say, what should I study, what should I study, and should I go to journalism school? And I, I have always felt that the most valuable training for journalism that I got um, was unexpected, but it was um, the moral philosophy work I did in graduate school, in which the professor would assign a topic, whether it was you know abortion or just war theory or whatever, and and invite me in to read an essay, make an argument, which he would then dismantle in about five minutes, and then he would say, "Okay, you want to switch sides?" <laughs> I'd say, "Yeah, great." And so we'd switch sides, and five minutes later, he would have dismantled the argument again. He'd say, you want to switch sides again? I said, well, we've already switched sides. He says, what, you think there are only two sides? <laughs> and it was an extremely rigorous training in, in why it is that people of goodwill and high intelligence can fundamentally agree on a disagree on things that matter. And I think a lot of the, of the journalism that, that I value most is done by writers who are intrigued by that tension, intrigued by the fact that whether it's the, the issue of gun ownership in America, think of any of the conversations we're having right now, um, it, of why it is that people who are, are morally and intellectually and socially and culturally you know, good, smart, law-abiding, honest people can fundamentally disagree on a matter of law or a matter of, of, of values. And, and why that is, and get inside the point of view of multiple dispositions. Mm -hmm. that, that being able to do that, I think, is, is both essential to, frankly, the functioning of a democracy. I think it helps in a democracy for us to understand 
not only what we disagree about, but why we disagree. Um, and I think it makes for great stories. It is a more interesting story when the tension is, is real. It will not come as a surprise to you to learn that uh, Nancy was a summa at Yale and then a Marshall Scholar at Oxford. I assume this is Oxford you're talking about. Yes. Apply what you've just said to writing a cover story on a subject like gun control or something that does have these kinds of, uh, of ambiguous, ambiguous right and wrong perspectives. How do you go about, you who do this as a craft as well as a talent, how do you go about imagining, if you would, you know, just Go take us through the process that you maybe go through in your head when you're sitting down to write a cover story for Time Magazine on a subject like that. Um, the process begins with figuring out who is the smartest person I can find who disagrees with me the most. <coughs> and the great thing about uh, the way Time, for me, who um, is scared of people and doesn't really like asking them uncomfortable questions, the wonderful thing about that was that in the early days, the division of labor was such that people who loved asking questions and finding stuff out, but who the prospect of a blank piece of paper was terrifying, their job was to go out and, and interview and dig and, and collect and then send all of that raw material into New York. And in New York were all of these people who in many cases were just so completely socially malfunctioning that they wouldn't leave their offices, <laughs> but were, you know, were virtuoso at, at taking all of that material and finding the, the logic and the narrative in it. And so it is, it is always has been true, I think, that, that when you get people working together, what I love about group journalism, which is often derided, but I love about it is you just make each other smarter. And so what was most fun on a, on a, a cover story like that would be to find a team of reporters, and preferably a team of reporters that had different points of view going into the story and and working together to to track down where are the where are the real differences and where do they come from and what accounts for them and are they cultural are they economic are they are they social where what are the roots of those differences and how can we understand them but it's it is i am much more interested in hearing from the people who who disagree with me completely but as you're doing that reviewing that material or listening to those people, are you also listening for something that will guide you into the story as a storyteller? Because you're also telling a story. Well, the the there's the, a sort of Supreme Court. You know it when you see it. But the the when the anecdote when you discover the anecdote or the example that perfectly encapsulates all the larger tensions and issues that you're exploring, it it. Those things have a way of kind of hitting you over the head. Um, I think that, the, that some of the stories I've enjoyed the most, I, I felt like I didn't write them so much as I assembled them. And I would say even, I mean, probably the, the most still um, painful and unforgettable example of this was, was September 11th, where pretty much the entire time staff went out to report that story um, on that day, even as it was happening around us, and just sent I me... I disagree. You wrote the hell out of that story. <laughs> you wrote the whole issue 
and she wrote it in one great sweeping I mean, yes, there were a lot of facts together, but that was a singular piece of magazine writing, and you wrote it. And it won the National Magazine. So we won't, we, I beg to disagree. <laughs> <laughs> With that, let me open this up to, uh, to questions from students uh, first, and then we'll go on to others as well. Are there students present who would like to ask a question of Nancy? Are you scared of people like she says she is, or? <laughs> that interesting that you said that you're scared of asking people tough questions given that you're a journalist so I was wondering like you personally when you're put in that situation kind of like I'm a former journalist myself and during press conferences I start sweating and just hate asking any kind of question but I was wondering how you fought against that and if it was also using just like how you are personally as well to try to get people to open up to you and try to you know um, have someone um, I think the thing that helped me most was getting to work with our bureau chief in Washington and the co-author on these books, Michael Duffy, who is a great interviewer, but, but I would watch him do it, and he taught me early on. He's, you know, and I would say, what's the, what's the secret? How do you... How do you get people to tell you the stuff they tell you? And and even after you know twenty five years of doing this together, I know he hasn't actually told me all the secrets. But but I have now sat in enough interviews with him uh, to know that that and it sounds obvious when you say it. But by far the best questions, and it almost doesn't matter who you were talking to. The best questions are really like what? How come? Huh? <laughs> and then shut up because you know especially especially when you're interviewing the kind of people who give press conferences especially um, people who are who have their scripts the the way to get them to say something interesting is for you to make it as big and broad and get out of the way as possible and and not fill the dead air and so um, I have there, I was skeptical at first, and then I watched that work, and it just kind of amazed me. Um, it, I think that the, I think that the, the, the art of the great interview is, is you know, in some ways, what you would expect. Although I'd be interested in what John and Alex would say to this is, you know, putting someone at ease, making them comfortable, being straight with them about, you know, what the ground rules are, that this is not a game, this is not a trap that you're setting, having the, the foundation of the conversation be that we are, we, are, we are in this together in one sense of trying to seek the truth, in another sense acknowledging that this may be an adversarial relationship and we're not going to pretend that it isn't. I think the more transparent um, the transaction is, the better. I think that makes it less uncomfortable. But the people who are great at it, I mean, I'd love to know what if, if there is something that great interviewers have in common. I see it in great photographers, incidentally, that I'm amazed at how when you work with the really great uh, photojournalists, how they are some of the most charming, charismatic people you will ever meet. And you think, okay, how, how is that? Well, they need they need people's guards to be down. They need people to be relaxed in their skin and their faces to be the way their faces are and not the way your face is when someone's taking your picture. And 
that's a that's a wild skill set. And I often think those I'd love to see what those photographers would do <coughs> as interviewers because they have the interpersonal skills to get past the 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 surface in a way that's a treat to watch. There's a former Neiman fellow who is a photographer who's getting ready to walk around the world and he was talking about this very thing about how he gets he goes to very uh, remote places and is able to persuade people to feel comfortable enough to have him take their pictures as well as to interview them and so forth. And he was he was talking about it just in the in exactly these terms about being honest and being straightforward, but trying to put people at, at ease and and um, and lightly. I mean, there's you know with a with a with a kind of uh, a relaxed kind of environment that you try to create. But it's a you know it's it also can be. Uh, uh, somewhat uh, deceptive because sometimes you do go into these situations and you do have a point of view and you do have a an agenda that you're trying to pursue that probably is not necessarily in the best interest of this person and so there's a tr strategic kind of way of, of you going about it. You pretty well yeah. in your book about interviewing Barry Bingham yeah. that you suddenly yeah. found him in a mood to talk which to me, the essential question ever since I started in this business has been, why do these people talk to me? Why, why would they possibly want to talk to me? And the answer I finally concluded is they want to talk about themselves. They want to be understood. They want their story to get out. The best photographer story, though, that I've seen in 40 years was Platon with Putin. And we're there to photograph him and interview him as the person of the year. And we do the interview, and the interview was tense and went badly, and I didn't do particularly well in it myself. I made some mistakes, and it, tension was building, and, we, and he had never agreed to the photograph yet. He had not, and we're in his dasha, out in the snow, and it's been, we've been there for hours and hours, and Platon is this little sort of flighty photographer, and he says to, I, actually negotiated that, okay, he will go in a room alone with him for a minute. And so somehow we got that done. So Platon and Putin come back, go away. They come back, Putin is smiling, he's relaxed, <laughs> he's happy, and Platon shows us his digital, uh, this great famous portrait that ran on the person of the year. And I said, how did you do that? He said, two things, I touched him. The man needs to be touched. <laughs> he said, I just touched him. And he goes like this. And he said, and the second thing I did is what I did with any really difficult subject. I just asked him what his favorite Beatles song was. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so now said, you know. And I said, yeah. and, I said and yesterday. <laughs> This is John Huey, the former top executive until a few, about two months ago at, uh, at time. Um, we have in the room, in addition to Nancy, at least four people who are affiliated with time or were at one time. Paul, uh, Peter, uh, Melissa, or there may be, uh, yeah, okay, and others. Okay, well, uh, I wondered if you, given this turn today, I'd like to not leave that without sort of addressing Nancy's vision of what may be coming and your own sense of what this most recent uh, reorganization is going to mean for for the institution of Time Magazine. Melissa? Well, I was sort of going to get at that. Nancy, I mean, I was one of, the, one of those people who for many years sent you those voluminous files, and then I would watch her transform these stories, and although we've added up 
you know, the number to about 150 cover stories. I mean, what you were saying, I mean, the quality of them, every time, I mean, I sometimes couldn't recognize it's my a, own reporting even more, when I saw it. It's more than yeah. anyone in the 90 yeah. year history of them. Yeah. So she is the oh, no, no, I mean, volume just, producer. I know if you feel 10,000 yeah. no. years old. I mean, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> that said, I think what's interesting, would be interesting to me, because I've been out of that shop for now almost 20 years, um, would be to hear a little bit about, as you think about the optimism for the future, you've detailed very clearly, brought back memories for me, of how it used to be done with all of these layers of people that did complementary work. But clearly now, with the resources being what they are, it's a very different process to do a story each week. And I'm wondering what it's like now to do it. I mean, you don't have as many correspondents in the field. You don't have as many fact checkers there. There aren't as many layers. So maybe you could just walk through that a little to get a sense of the vision of where the future. I, you know, I, I have to imagine that it's, it's even more fun now. And the, oh. and the reason for that is a couple. One is, particularly for correspondents, the frustration of not having control mm -hmm. over the story. Um, you know, now when most stories, unless, you know, so this week's, the cover that comes out tomorrow is on the, the, the Pope and the what this means for the church going forward. So in this case, it's a classic case where the turnaround time is very quick. Mm -hmm. It's a moving story. We have people in Rome and in London and in Washington all yeah. sending in their interviews. So that is sort of an old-fashioned, um, and it's you know written in New York. Mm -hmm. That's the exception. The other, the other stories in this week's magazine, a great investigation of what we call the most expensive weapon in history, the F-35, and what it tells us about the, the budget, the sequester, the fascinating investigative piece that was done start to finish by our Pentagon correspondent. Another is a piece on the Bolshoi and the, the great you know drama going on there written by our correspondent in Moscow. So the fact that people have control over pitching and shaping and reporting and writing their own stories um, is partly an economic reality that we do have a smaller staff, but it's also partly because the 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 luxury of having um, a website that can be covering news as, as it is happening means that for the print magazine, we get to take a little more time. These are stories, you know, the Pope story is turned around in 48 hours. The F-35 was probably three months mm -hmm. in the making. Mm -hmm. And so... I think that being liberated from any sense of these are the stories we must do this week to being able to look at, okay, the budget sequester issue has been in the conversation for a long time. What are the smart ways that we can explain what that means, what the implications are, how that works, what you should care about? And launch those stories knowing, I mean, the Marco Rubio cover last week, we had launched weeks before and so we had it almost finished at the point at which the immigration debate and then his Indian during the response, state of the union yeah. response you know but but we that that story had been in the works for a long time so um i think that that is probably more satisfying to to have more time and more control and and we're able to do that now partly because we have divided the immediate breaking news coverage to time.com and the, the mm -hmm. longer term investment pieces into, into print.
Yes, Paul. So, so let me follow up on the way you, your advice on asking questions. So um, today's Man Bites Dog story is multiple homeless people have agreed to move in together, and now that magically gives them a condominium, huh? So you're optimistic about journalism, but the story is, is almost fantastical that by putting these homeless folks together, they're going to have a home. So where, where do we pay for this, and, and what's the... You can tease out the booze, that was crazy. I can tell you my own story about my mm -hmm. office redecoration budget that mm -hmm. I got in trouble for not spending. So There was a time when time correspondents were criticized if they didn't travel first class because it just didn't look right. I, 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 I took a subway to the airport and I had to put in $35 yeah. instead of $35. Thank God you're holding up your end. Exactly. So, okay, so that, that's gone. The stakes were fraud. The, those things were excessive. Now reporters can get closer to actually getting their own words in print. But we're getting pretty close to no model. And today's coverage of the, the stories this week are a little bit about almost putting no models together and hoping two no models becomes a model. Where, where does that end, do you think? And how do you stay optimistic? Of course, if I knew the answer to the former, I you know, would probably be one of the many, many bankers that is getting rich as we speak, winding and unwinding. None of them these. have the answer. They're just getting <laughs> um, but why I stay optimistic goes back to to uh, the demand question. I, I think as long as we, and I mean collectively, people who care about journalism, are providing a product for which there is both need and demand, that there has to be an e economic model that supports that. Um, is is And many, many smarter people have spent much more time than I thinking about this, but... Um, Maybe not. <laughs> the, you know, the, the, when I look at, at old issues of, of Time or Life or, you know, any of the great magazines and you just see the, the, the ads that were in them and the kinds of ads, yeah. I mean, Life, God, you look at Life in, you know, the early 1960s, you know, it was a beautiful weekly magazine that was the size of a phone book. And... It, it, it was just, it was, it was an incredible product, and, and yet it almost died because of its own success, in a sense, and died many times and was brought back to life. Um, the, the, the challenge that advertisers are facing now in how to, how to perform their mission, how to, how to deliver their messages into the minds of people, they have a real challenge, too. We're affected by it, but they have a real challenge, too. So... Do we end up moving towards more of a subscription model, more of a people who are consuming the content or paying for the content rather than it being underwritten, they get it for free because it's underwritten by advertisers? Well, that would seem an obvious direction. I think, was it just last week that the New York Times announced that they had flipped, that they were now making more revenue from subscriber than advertising? So there you see right in front of you how... The, now, whether they're going to be making enough money... Yeah, there are two ways to have that, those lines cross. Yeah. Yes. Um, on the way down. <laughs> yes. Yeah, on the way down or on the way up. 30% down and 6% up. You know, That's where they cross. There are, there are a great many people who, are say, who will say that, that once we all started giving away our stuff for free, we pretty much, you know, I mean, what could have been stupider than that? And um, that everyone's going to need to stop doing that. That 
that is that is one of the many theological arguments about that everyone is having about paywalls and about subscriber models. I, you know, I truly don't know how this is going to turn out. But but one thing that puts me in the more optimistic camp, I will say, and fairly recently, having watched this struggle for the last you know ten years, uh, is actually is this. So. You all can see, just walking around or being on an airplane, uh, of the extent to which this is, by the day, practically replacing everything else that people have used to consume media. I look at my own habits of how much time I spend holding a physical book, a physical magazine, a physical newspaper, or even my laptop, compared to how much time I spend with this. And for, for people who do long-form narrative, wonderful photography, uh, the kinds of things that are our sort of core equities, arguably the, a desktop or a laptop is not a great delivery vehicle. This is a great delivery vehicle for what we produce. And so the fact that, that more and more people now are consuming more and more media on this device that is ideally suited to what we produce has to give me some hope that however, how the revenue model works, and the advertisers haven't figured this out, but the ads look better on this. They can do more on this. So I can't imagine that the problem that you're having with display advertising on the web is automatically going to be true of tablet advertising, you know, which is a much richer environment. I think that, that, that we are in a very important, dramatic, transitional period. I think the luxury of being part of uh, either Time Inc. or Time Warner, being part of a, of a big, creative, powerful company, it has its disadvantages. I think the advantage that it gives us is we're in a better position to survive the transition uh, while this gets figured out. Um, and whenever, you know, why is Newsweek out of print and time isn't, I'd like to say, because we're just better, and I'll, I'll, I can make that argument, but I will also say we had advantages by virtue of being part of a larger network of magazines, of properties, of, that had advantages for how we sell and how we get our subscribers and all sorts of things. How much time was making money, Newsweek was losing money. Time was making money. How much do you think because of the corporate environment of support that it was in? I think that's an over-exaggerated advantage. Um, I think time made its money because it made some intelligent management decisions about circulation and advertising that Newsweek didn't. I think Newsweek made some cataclysmic decisions along the way and waited too long to make some of the decisions. Time changed its delivery to pre-weekend. Newsweek stayed post-weekend. Time lowered its rate base from four million to three million, or four point two to three point two. Newsweek stayed at three too long. They should have gone. They should have followed everything we did. They didn't. And then when they got in a hole where they were losing like twenty million dollars a year, they decided to just gut their rate base, go down to a million, and become an opinion journal. And if there's, 
any evidence out there that there's no mass market for what mm -hmm. we think versus what we find out. <laughs> Newsweek 2.0 or whatever it was, was a colossal failure from the consumer marketing. Now, once that happened, and, and it was over, before they ever sold it to the Daily Beast. The Daily I mean, Harmon buying it and all that, that was, there were no economics involved in any of that. That was all show business. And it was a dead property. It was make, it was losing probably $45 million at the end a year. And uh, at time, the, the one big advantage you had being part of Time Warner I guess in terms of staying alive was that Time Warner would never run anything that lost $45 million a year, so that wasn't an option. <laughs> and you you had to stay above the line. Right. One interesting fact about Time economically is the best year in its history, and, and here we have the danger of somebody talking too much about something they do know about instead of, because this, this I know. Its most profitable year in history was 2000. And its second most profitable year in history was 2006. So it, its profitability over the years has always been exaggerated. The fact is Life Magazine took up five floors of that building and generated tons and tons of cash. When it died in 72 because of its huge rate-based versus television network, the popular myth is that People Magazine was launched out of the People section of time. People Magazine was actually launched by former refugees from Life Magazine, and people replaced Life Magazine as the profit engine of that company. All this is to say that the one thing that really worries me about this latest move is the disaggregation of people away from the news properties will, will weaken it, its uh, durability in some ways, because the model for 90 years has been a popular magazine that makes a lot of money and a serious magazine that has license to make less money but ride along in a slipstream. It didn't make money because it was part of timing, but it didn't have the pressure to make, to grow and make a lot of money because people throws off so much money. So the cash is gone out of this business now. That's disturbing. Does that sound plausible to you? Far be it from me. <laughs> challenge Archbishop Huey, but yes, that is. Um, I mean, I'm not yes. being, no. I, I'm, no, not, no, I'm no. not trying to rain on your uh, no, no, no. optimism. I'm just saying I, one cause for concern here is no. this was a company that was in the magazine business and they were making a lot of money and they took the three titles that aren't making so much money. So you're saying we can't now just attach ourselves to HBO's slipstream and Clive? No, it doesn't work that way yeah. because you were in the same business as as these other yeah. magazines. You sh they were all in the magazine business. And the magazine business is more complicated than you might think when you look at consumer marketing, logistics, distribution, all of that. It's, it's kind of big and capital intensive. And not like the newspaper business. The newspaper business is more complicated because you got you got trucks, unions, presses. <laughs> magazine doesn't have any of that, but it's still a complicated business. Um, so I, I kind of want to ask a, a question um, that would have been mutinous when I was working at Time, and I'm, I'm still scared that John's going to reflexively smite me for asking this. I'm but, an academic. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All questions are purely academic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
so you know, you, you look at the kind of the, the cultural history of the consultancies, and there, it's a long sort of history of people breaking out, you know, uh, sort of talented people within consultancies. You know, Bain and his rebels storming out from BCG and all that kind of stuff. It seems to me that uh, you know th there are certain kind of patron saints at time of which you are one for really kind of great storytelling and journalism. Um, has there you know? Wouldn't it kind of make sense, considering that uh, it's fundamentally a profitable business, but uh, the, the challenges are really from a, a, a public company side to sort of think about going into a partnership and, and going private? And, um, you know, if you move online, maybe it takes away some of the cost barriers to that and barriers to entry. I mean, that, that seems to me like always when I was at Time, you know, why, why, why doesn't someone just lead a rebellion against this? They're killing us, you know. What do you say in that sentence, though? Who's they are killing us? Uh, the realities of being in, facing the pressures of being a publicly traded company, I think. We should have a capital and distribution challenge. Capital challenge. Can, cap, yeah. Consultants can go out, walk across the street, and then a desk and start over. But surely those are those are dropping. You know, you don't. You know, you can be laptop correspondents now. If you go online, you don't have to run the presses. I mean, it's not as expensive. I mean, I don't know. I don't know well, how if rich. You, if, you, if you say that Time Inc. throws off about four hundred million dollars in free cash every year, but doesn't grow, then the obvious conclusion is it would be a smarter business to be owned privately. Because if you owned it privately and you were getting four hundred million dollars a year in free cash flow, you'd be most individuals would probably be pretty happy with that. I would be. I'd love to own it. And I wouldn't care if it grew because it would just be my $400 million. So, yeah, you're right. It would be better off as a private company. But getting from a public company to a private company in a rapidly declining business is very difficult. Do you have an opinion about whether Time, the magazine, should have a, uh, a paywall for its website? Well, I have a lot of opinions, and that's the problem, uh, because... We care what you think. Well, because, I mean, on, on any... We can sit here and say the obvious, that if, if you are giving your product away for free, how exactly do you expect to monetize it, which I makes perfect sense to me. On the other hand, on any given week, when I'm around the table with my writers who are killing themselves to get the story and and get over the finish line and get it closed and they they want it out there they want people to be able to read it and argue with it and share it and and to be shaping the conversation we're having so you know week before last when we did the cover on drones um, you know which was a really interesting thoughtful look at not only the the military legal moral questions but you know at, at deeper and deeper levels of what it is going to mean that basically this technology is going to be part of our lives <laughs> day to day here at home too it you know the 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 whole conversation that week was about drones and if i'm that writer i i want that to be setting the the terms of the debate so as you know with both my hats, you know, when I was the writer, I wanted as many people to be reading my stories as possible. When the New York Times tried Time, Time Select and the columnists are suddenly behind a paywall and their audience drops, they go nuts. And I don't blame them for that. So, you know, I this is a classic case of one where I, I feel it from 
both sides. So I, you know, I don't know what the right answer is to it at all. Uh, this is kind of a narrow and self-serving question because it gets to the project I'm doing here. But when you talk about your correspondence getting out there, you know, leaving the house, leaving the bureau, um, time during the last presidential race had people in the White House press corps. They had reporters all over the country. Um, they didn't, for I think one of the first times, have a full-time person traveling with Governor Romney. Um, what? Why was that? Was it a utility thing? Was it not worth the money? Were you not getting enough? Um, and, and Time wasn't the only outlet who made that decision. I mean, what's your view of Time's role in the kind of on-the-bus model of political journalism now? You know, I, I would obviously love to have enough correspondence that I could have had, especially during the primaries, I could have happily staffed Herman Cain and Michelle Bachman mm -hmm. and Rick, I mean, God, yeah. how much fun was that, right? And so having to sort of drop in and out of whichever one was craziest in any given week was, you know, um, interesting. But but, uh, but in we are constantly having to make decisions that, that if if we decide to cover X, it is means we are deciding not to cover Y. And so during the much of the campaign, it was week by week a decision of, of a finite number of resources with an almost infinite number of choices of how we deploy them. And so um, it was a reflex, obviously, for many years that, of course, in any presidential election year, of course, you have someone, it's like any time the president goes overseas, you always staff that trip. Now, sometimes we do, sometimes we don't, because if we decide we're going to do it, deploy that correspondence, spend that money, it's something else that we actually may think is more important. And so um, the obvious question on a campaign is often, I think, the best stories and the best reporting and the most important journalism occurs by not being on right. the bus. And, um, you know, the... My favorite Washington correspondents will all have a story about how the best thing that happened to them was when they were blackballed by this campaign or by the White House, or you are dead to us, we're never talking to you again. Great. <laughs> it's the best thing that can happen to you. So I think it's, it's, it, it would be completely wrong to say just because you're, you're not on the bus means you're not covering the campaign. We're, we're always covering the campaign. But whether or not doing it from the bus was the best way to do it at any given stage we're way past, I think, that. You know, I, I realize I have been remiss because I am so, uh, so much an admirer of Nancy as a writer that I didn't emphasize sufficiently that she is the deputy managing editor of Time Magazine. She is one of the two people who makes the decisions about who gets covered and who does mm -hmm. not and where those resources go and what the stories are <laughs> and so forth. So this is not... Um, this is not sort of idle opinion. This is an important. It's opinion. still idle opinion. <laughs> <laughs> Other questions? Yeah. Well, Jill. Yeah. Jill. Um, I just was. It's been fascinating listening to you. And thank you for coming. Um, but I was fascinated by the numbers you said at the beginning of having 25 million in print and 25 million in online. But I'm wondering how how has it been for you navigating because they're radically different worlds. And the overlap between those two readerships is less than 10%. Yeah. So I'm just curious to know yeah. a little, just how yeah. that's been to, to ride that. Well, I will say that, that whenever I look at the research, which I look at somewhat skeptically because it's imperfect, but uh, it intrigues me, for instance, to have just seen some data about who 
are, you know, we now have a body of, of full-time tablet subscribers. So are they, do they count as digital readers or print readers? Well, they're reading the print magazine on a digital device, so which are they? Well, what I can tell you is that they are younger, more highly educated, much higher income, much more satisfied with the magazine, much more likely to renew their subscription. You know, by all the metrics we have about how happy are your consumers with your product, our happiest consumers are actually our tablet consumers. Um, our digital audience similarly tends to be younger. It is slightly more male. We're one of the only, it's been so funny reading all of these stories about how basically the girl magazines are going to Meredith and the boy magazines are going to Time Warner, which is, just cracks me up because really. Um, but Time is one of, is, is unusual in Time Inc. Uh, I don't know what Entertainment Weekly's numbers are, but Time is roughly 50-50 men and women in its readership. So, um, the, and that is true, you know, it's a little bit different, but it's generally true for our digital audience as well as our print audience. Um, one of the things we're sort of, one of the challenges we faced is why is it that our print audience, who people who are there, who are making the decision, spending the money to be our subscribers are not, um, seeing what we're doing in between those issues because the content on time.com, only a tiny, tiny fraction of it is what's in the magazine. It's a whole other, it's a whole other realm of content from the same, you know, Joe Klein may be writing a column in the magazine, but he's writing, you know, on Swampland every day and, and our TV critic can have a column in the magazine, but he's blogging every day on his. So how is it that we have somehow failed utterly to communicate to our subscribers that if you like this, there is more of it, um, and you can pick and choose which parts you like and would like more of. I think that's a, you know, that's one of the, the big opportunities we have, because we know that there's an audience that already associates us with, with valuable authoritative information, and presumably that is an audience that we should be able to reach on multiple platforms so um. we're out of time I just want to say Nancy it is a great pleasure to have you with us thank you so much oh, wow. and long may you ride the ride